David Spada is a successful attorney whose dream was to become a sports talk show host. Elliot Harris is a Chicago sports columnist who wanted to expand his media presence. In the next hour, they combine their talents and love of sports and women by interviewing former professional athletes and lovely ladies on sports and torts. But keeping the boys out of trouble isn't always easy because when David and Elliot are together, they have more fun than should be legal. We're in for another great show today. We're going to have gentlemen who played with the Brooklyn Dodgers. I remember more as a manager with the San Francisco Giants. I mean, this guy's career spanned six decades. He was actually involved with the uh, 2001 world champion Arizona Diamondbacks. Let's get right to the interview we did with Roger Craig. Yes, I've had a, uh, a long career and had a lot of a uh, few ups and downs, but uh, I managed to just stay in there. And it hurt my arm real bad. The last game the Brooklyn Dodgers ever pitched in Philadelphia and it was a cold, rainy night, and I never did get over that. I had to learn how to pitch all over again. But, I, you know, I, uh, I pitched, uh, I don't know how many years, about almost 12 years. And then I, I was a coach and manager and consultant, so I kind of did it all, scout. You were also once upon once upon a time. You were also a basketball player. Yes, it did. Uh, in fact, in high school, I was a lot better basketball player than baseball. My, I didn't start playing baseball till really that summer. I mean, I, we got a pitcher on our team that was a lot better than me. And I, I look back now, and he had major league stuff when when he was in high school, seventeen, eighteen years old. A guy named Julius Moore, and he signed with the Yankees, and he, he got hurt too. But. Uh, then I, I played American Legion ball that summer, and that's when the scouts kind of saw me, and uh, and they they contacted me, and I, I I went to North Carolina State on a basketball scholarship, and I played there the, uh, as a freshman the first year, and then when baseball season came around, I just had the bug and the itch, and I wasn't doing too good in my studies, and I talked to my dad. I said, I want, to, I want to sign a professional baseball contract. He said, well, you got a free education. How can you turn that down? I said, well, I want to do it anyway. So I, he let me sign, and that's where it started. Did you ever consider going to Duke or North Carolina for college? Oh, yeah. I, I was born and raised about two miles from the Duke campus and 15 miles from North Carolina. And I had offers to go to Duke, Duke as a basketball player. I was I made all state and I was second in scoring. You know, back in those days, we didn't have the the great uh, African American players, and uh, and I was like six four, and uh, so. Uh, but I didn't have good enough studies to go to Duke University. They were they were pretty well. They still are a real prominent uh, educational school, and so. But anyway, so I ended up going to North Carolina State. Because you would have been teammates with, what, Dick Grote at Duke? Uh, you know, I was, when I was in high school, Dick Grote was there, and, and we played uh, we played a lot of scrimmages against him. And, uh, and then it, it's ironic, Dick and I played together with the Cardinals in 1964, the world champions, and we're still close friends. And, uh, yeah, he was a great basket. He's the one that started that jump shot, I think, jumping up, one-handed jump shot. He could, you know, He was a really... A, he could. He was just as good a basketball player as he was baseball. 
and he was a darn good baseball player. Yes, he was. He was uh, led the league and hit, I think, one year. And and I, we had enjoyed each other and had a lot of fun playing that one year together. Okay. Now you were a six foot four shortstop once upon a time too. Yes. Nor, 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 normally a shortstop, you think of you know maybe six foot. But yeah. Did, uh, well, I was just. Uh, I didn't realize I, I had that good arm, and I and uh, and the coach wanted me to play infield. So I had pretty good hands and a good arm, and uh, that's the way it started out. And I enjoyed that because I played every day and pitching. You know, we didn't you don't do that, but uh, I don't think I'd have made it because I was uh, I was a good pretty good hitter in high school in American Legion. When I got to the professional baseball, I did hit a three run homer in ninth inning in my first year in the minor leagues, but. Uh, I was not a very good hitter. I didn't really work hard as I should have on it. I see that you were playing down in Cuba when you got called up by the Dodgers. How did that come about? Well, I was playing with the uh, Montreal Royals, and that was, Cuba was in the league. And uh, Tommy Lasorda now pitched a double hitter one night, and he pitched the first game. And the, and uh, what's the name was there? The guy that was the prime minister, or whatever he was. Uh, Batista? Yes. No, no, the other one, the one that took his place. Oh, Castro. Castro, because he was really a baseball fan. He was at every game. I I don't know if he still goes or if he's still alive. But anyway, (laughs) he he pitched a shutout in the first game, and I pitched a shutout in the second game. And that night we went out and had a couple of beers. And next morning the manager, Greg Malibu, called me and says, come up to my office on the top of my room. I said, okay. I said, oh, God, what happened? And then when I go up and he says, sit down. I was looking for things to be bad news. He said, you're pitching Sunday. I said, you already told me that. He said, you're pitching Sunday in Brooklyn. <laughs> and I was stunned and floored. I could just, you know, God. And I called my wife from Montreal, I mean, from Havana, Cuba to Montreal, and she almost hung up on me. I said, what do you do? You know, it's going to cost about $20. She's calling me. I said, I'm going to the big lake. She said, I don't care. <laughs> well, anyway, Tommy, to this day, still... He thought he should have gone instead of me because he's had a little bit of experience, not much in the major leagues. But uh, that's where it started. And uh, that year before, I had hurt uh, hurt my arm, and, and doing the uh, I broke my arm playing basketball, the left arm, right before I went to spring training, and uh, I didn't get healed up until the middle of the year. They sent me the the doctor sent me to. Uh, Elmira, New York. Tommy Holmes was the manager. Then they sent me to uh, uh, Pueblo, Colorado. Goldie Holt was the manager. And I was pitching there, and I was pitching, throwing really good. I had a no-hitter going until in the fifth inning. And, and he come walking out to the mound, and I said, I got a no-hitter going. What's going on? He said, I'm taking you out. I said, no, no. He said, well, look behind you. Here comes another pitcher coming in. So anyway, they sent me back to Newport News where I played before I got went in the army, and uh, uh, I played there. I really got hot and pitched really good and got in the playoffs. I'll never forget Pepper Martin, a great shortstop, uh, was the manager of Portsmouth, Virginia, and he put it in the paper said this kid should be in the big league soon. And the next year, I pitched in the World Series from Class B ball. That was a pretty good jump. <laughs> In those days, that that was quite the jump. You know, nowadays you get guys, pitchers, going from Double A to the majors. But back yeah. then, when you, you had 
so you know A B C D. Exactly ball. right. You know, guys usually ha- had to be at uh, you know Montreal before you'd end up in Brooklyn. Yeah. Well, I went to uh, the next year. I went to Montreal, and I was there. I was there. I was ten and two, and, and uh, ten and four. I forgot. That's when I got called up. And one of my greatest thrills was the day I walked in that Brooklyn clubhouse, and I looked around. And I saw all those superstars, Hall of Famers, and all. I said, I don't belong here. And finally, the uh, clubhouse guy come over to me and said, Come on, kid. Here's your locker. And I went over and I said, The locker's only like a two foot wide anyway, and, and about six foot tall. And but I didn't see a locker in. He said, there's a locker. I said, what do you mean? This is, it was a 10-penny nail up there. That was my locker. <laughs> so I said, I didn't say that. I said, I'm okay. Anyway, I pitched a three-hitter of complete game victory against Cincinnati, and after the game was over, I had me a locker. He <laughs> <laughs> made me earn it. I, I read somewhere that you had a private driver take you from the airport to uh, the game by the name of Jackie Robinson. Was that correct? Well, no, it was after the game was over, Walter Austin, see, I'd come from Cuba, and he he, he uh, called me in his office and said, you're not pitching for for four more days. Back in those days, we pitched every fourth day. He said, uh, why don't you go to Montreal and get your uh, your kid and and uh, my wife and, and come on back? So I said, okay. And, and uh, so I go in the clubhouse, and I'm asking people about, you know, how I get to the airport. I'm just kind of a very uh, raw country boy from North Carolina and they said well you go down and take the, go down and take the L train the subway and go this and that and I said what do you mean go go down in the ground and I couldn't understand that and finally Jackie Robinson walked over to me and says come on kid I'll give you a ride and I was stunned and and you're talking about a one of he, that guy was the greatest one of the greatest men I've ever met in my life anyway the whole way out there he talked to me about pitching and what I did that day, and uh, I got a chance to have a good, good future, and all this. And he never mentioned one word about what he had went through. And I, from that day on, '55, I, I saw a lot of it what happened. But uh, then I found out later on that he went out of his way to take me to the airport. I never forgot that. Did you have to pinch yourself on the way to the airport? Say, is this really happening? Now, yeah, I didn't because I didn't say nothing because I didn't know what to say. I didn't want to say nothing wrong. I didn't say anything. I just let him do the talking, and and he just talked about the game I pitched and all, and how, how I could help the ball club and so and so and this and that. And, and I wanted to ask him some questions, but I was too scared to. <laughs> now, to, to to this day, in fact, the last was oh, about five or six years ago. I was in in uh, L.A. the Dodger game for some reason, and Rachel Robinson was there and. And I got her to sign a, a Brooklyn Dodger hat for me. And she said, don't you sell this thing. I said, that thing will be in my house as long as I live. And I'm looking at it right now over here in my room. But Jackie was, uh, Jackie was, uh, he was so, uh, you know, he just, uh, for all the things he went through, and he went through it with just, uh, without looking back, without being afraid. He wasn't afraid of nothing. In fact, when I read that Branch Ricky told him said that when you when you when I signed you said you you can't fight back they're gonna call you this and that and Jackie kind of looked at him kind of funny but after a while by the time I got there Jackie Jackie would fight back a little bit he wouldn't take a lot of that stuff anymore. 
but he was just a phenomenal man, and God, he'd have been a great president if he'd lived long enough. Yeah. Now, you mentioned Brank, Branch Rickey. His brother, Frank Rickey, is the guy that you signed with, yes? Yeah. God, you've got more information on me than I know about. Well, you know, <laughs> we try to do a little research every once in a while. So, no, the guy that, that followed me, after I played about high school and I played in American Legion, and then after that was over, I played in a, a meal team. I forgot the name of the place I played in. And that's when the scout, Pat Merrill, I think it's M-U-R-R-O-W. In fact, I would wish I could get a hold of his family and thank him for it. Anyway, he, he followed me and followed me and followed me, and there were some other clubs. The Boston Braves were interested in me and, uh, uh, in Brooklyn, and, and he, he worked. He, he was kind of a bird dog scout under, under Branch Rickey. Frank Ricky, his brother, Frank Ricky. And, and actually, Frank Ricky, I don't think he ever saw me pitch. But Pat Merrill's the guy that scouted me all those games and that I pitched in the, that middle leg. And, uh, and he's, and then that's, I mean, he signed me. I think the one thing that not a lot of people don't know about is I got drafted into the Army after my first two years. And, uh, and I ended up playing on the, uh, on the post team in Fort Jackson, South Carolina. My three catchers over two years were uh, Frank Pig House, uh, uh, what was the, the, Ed, the guy used to be the general manager for uh, Boston, the catcher? Haywood Sullivan. Haywood Sullivan was, was uh, the other catcher, and uh, God, the other one, another was a great, oh, Ed Bailey. From Cincinnati. Yeah, Cincinnati. Ed Bailey. All three of those guys caught me those two years, and, and, uh, I really, they they gave me the confidence. Said you can you can pitch in the big leagues, kid. You know, just take care of all this, and and they made me believe that I could pitch. And I I really pitched well down in those. I think I was sixteen and one, and seventeen and two in two years there. Was Roy Campanella catching you when you came up with the Dodgers? Yes, he caught me in my first game and a lot of games. Yeah, he was. He just he just he said you just look at my glove and whatever I call you throw it. I said okay, and I did and. I didn't really have that good control, but he helped me on uh, the c- control a lot by pitching in and out and stuff like that. But he was a great player, that guy. Well, what was the transition like going from – you'd been to some places that, you know, I don't even know that they have uh, minor league teams there, Valdosta, Georgia, you know, Elmira, and ending up in, you know, in Brooklyn, which is like as – when I was a kid, I always thought that the World Series was the Dodgers against the Yankees because it seemed like every every year those two teams were playing. Yeah. Well, you know, my first year, well, I, I went to Newport News. I had a really good spring. And, uh, you know, they had, they had 25 farm clubs in spring training. And every time you pitched, if you pitched, regardless how you pitched, you check the score, I mean, the, the bulletin board the next day because you might be on a, a, a better team or a lower team if you pitch bad. Anyway, I ended up going from Class D to Class B in spring training. I ended up at Newport News to start out, but I was wild and all. I got sent to Valdosta, Georgia, and that's where I really uh, pitched. I think I won 14 or 15 games. I think I led the league in wins and strikeouts and base on balls and hits batsmen and everything. But I, I, it's ironic. I got a letter from an old sports writer, that was there, and he, they said the house that I lived in, it was a bunch of us, about six or seven of us that lived in the, this big old house, and it's still standing there. 
and he said, sent me a picture. I said, this is a house for Roger Craig and all that stuff. Wow. What, what was Ebbets Field like for those who never had the chance to to actually be in Ebbets it? Ebbets Field was, you know, I just signed some, some autographs today, and when a guy asked me about where was my favorite stadium, I said, Ebbets Field. I think my record there was like 9 or 10 and 1. I just happened to pitch good there, and I, I never thought nothing about being a band box or a small ball. I said, I miss a major league stadium. This is great, you know, so, but I enjoyed pitching there. But the first game I pitched, I pitched against Cincinnati, first major league game I ever saw. And I pitched a three hit complete game victory. And the next day I'm in the outfield talking to Carl Erskine, we're talking about pitching. And some Craig, some guy fan in the stands hollered, Hey, Craig, you bum, you'll be back to minor leagues in a couple of weeks. <laughs> and, and Carl said, Don't get upset. That means he loves you. <laughs> but uh, that, that was quite a day that day then that night no I was thinking oh, I'm going to get ahead of myself but I, I won a game in the World Series and that night my mother was there and two brothers and we went out to went downtown and the, my name came across the thing in the Times Square the Roger Craig beat the so, so we ended up going to Jack Dempsey's restaurant and he found out I was there and come over and sat with us the whole time and what a what an honor that was just to be there with him, and because he was from Mississippi, somewhere down in there, Missouri, so I don't know. Yeah. But anyway, that was that was during the World Series. Yeah, the Manassa Mauler or something like that, I think was his nickname. Well, yeah. The guy I felt bad for on the Dodgers was Duke Schneider. It seemed like he was always the third fiddle. I mean, everybody, everybody talked about Mano and Mays, but they always forgot about Duke. Duke was a Duke was a great player. He said. He could jump as high as anybody I've ever seen because he wasn't that. I mean, he was a big guy. He was he was probably six one or six two, weighed about two hundred pounds. But he could. I saw him climb the fence. Took two steps in the in Philadelphia one night in Old County Mike Stadium and jumped up over the fence and caught a, a home ball that would have been a home run. But Duke was a great. He was a great hitter. He hit. I think the game, major the World Series game I won in 1955. If I'm not mistaken, he had two home runs. Seemed like every time I pitched, he did a home run. Yeah. What was Walter Alston like as a manager? He, he was a he was a quiet type. Now that I've seen all of, he was a very quiet manager. But I say one thing about him: he listened to his coaches. We had uh, Cookie Lavagetto and uh, oh God, Joe Becker was a pitching coach and. Trying to think the but anyway, but he listened to us. He asked you to ask Jackie and Pee Wee, especially Pee Wee. Pee Wee's a great baseball man. He'd have been a great manager. But he didn't want to go through all that stuff. But anyway, he uh, Walt was a quiet guy, but he 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 was a a very stern guy. I mean, he wouldn't take no. He'd just go along with everything. Why? And something that was going wrong in the clubhouse, he'd have a meeting and he'd get in somebody's face real bad, and he'd challenge a couple of guys. And, Said some things about him right in front of the whole ball club, and he, but nobody ever knew about this, and that he was just such a, a quiet guy. But he was, he was, uh, he was in the game, and he was he 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 knew how to manage a ball club, especially when the, the, all the great stars he had. Well, and then, you know, Jack yeah. and Jack had been there, and then, and then we had the Newcomb and Campanella and Gilliam, and yeah, to, to manage all those egos. It isn't as easy as you'd think. Oh, right. You you also were able to see a young Sandy Koufax before he became really the the Hall of Fame pitcher that he ultimately did become. 
Yeah, it's, it's ironic you mentioned. I talked to him two days ago. He's going. They're bringing the the seven living, only living 1955 Dodgers, the Brooklyn Dodgers, back to uh, May the 16th in, at uh, Dodger Stadium, and I'm gonna go up there. I'm taking my two daughters, and they're gonna introduce and all. They they, they just called me. They're gonna they won't want my hat size. Uh, I guess you're going to put us in uniform, like walk out on the field. be kind of cool. I would think yeah. so. Yeah. It, it, it's hard to imagine that it's 60 years later. I you know. Because, you know, I can remember the, the 55 series when I was a kid. Yeah. And so... You know, get back, get but, back to Sandy. Sandy would, had signed. He was on the ball club. But, you know, he was he was really wild. And, and just, you know, he pitched a lot of... And they didn't want to take batting practice off him because he did. He tried to throw the ball easy and he couldn't do it. And he and he was so wild that uh, one of the guys says, "Don't you throw one in the cage once in a while?" He was that wild. But you know, look uh, look what he ended up doing. Yeah, I mean, how how does a pitcher go from being the the wild pitcher that he was to just the dominant? Uh, Probably the greatest greatest left hander for, for a short time, yeah. certainly. Yeah, yeah, he was still he's in the, he signed a contract. I guess I don't know what he made, but at that time, if you got over six thousand dollars, I got six thousand dollars. If I got six thousand one dollar, I'd have had to stay a year in the major leagues. And no, no way I could have done that as raw as I was. But and the Sandy was the same way, but he got more than that. So, uh, uh, but. My wife's just coming in here bringing me some water, and I must be talking too much. So. <laughs> At least she uh, didn't pour. She didn't pour it on you. Yeah. Uh, what we're going on our sixty? What third? Sixty-four? Sixty-four years of marriage. Okay. We went to high school together, and her name, first name, is really Ruth, but Ruth, but they, everybody called Ruth Carolyn, but she was named after Babe Ruth. Her brother's name was George Herman. Really. How did her How did her so parents that, deal with you playing for the Dodgers when they were Yankee fans? They learned to like it though. But you know he uh, uh, he did, he never got a chance to see me. Uh, I think he saw me pitch in the major leagues, but he never saw me manage. He always told me one day, "You're gonna manage in the big leagues." I said, "You kid, I don't I don't want to manage. I, I can't manage." Anyway, then you got the you know, play. I, I I got one thing that. You guys might can look it up. That I've got uh, six World Series rings from, from let's see, fifty-five Dodgers, fifty-nine LA Dodgers, the Cardinals, sixty-four, sixty-four. Then in uh, with the uh, uh, Tigers when I was a pitching coach, eighty-four. And then in eighty, eighty-nine. I was in managing when the, doing the earthquake with the Giants, but we we got beat. We, but I was the National League champion. And, and then I got one as a consultant for the uh, when Bob Brindley was a manager at at, at uh, Arizona. So that's six World Championship rings from, from six different cities. That's a pretty you know, good. A lot trick. of guys back in the old days with the Yankees, them guys got ten or twelve of them. But for, for difference, and people ask me a lot of times, said, "Is that a record?" I, I don't know. I don't think that might be, but I don't know. It's got to be because again, I don't remember anyone ever being on six different World Series teams. Yeah, let me make sure that's right. I say fifty-five, fifty-nine, sixty-four, eighty-four, uh, 
and now eight and yeah, eight and nine, but we didn't win. We, we was in it, but then then in two thousand one. Now, if you have Randy Johnson and Kurt Schilling, how much advice do you have to give Bob Brenly? Uh, I tell him put the ball in that locker on every fourth day. <laughs> not to say nothing to him. <laughs> but that was fun, kind of working with them. But and those guys. They got along good together, but they fed off of each other. One guy pitched one game, and they, the next day the other guy pitched just as good, and they were just unbelievable. And they both were fierce competitors. Uh, Kurt Schilling was, was, he's always in my ear talking, asking me questions about this, about pitching, all that. And Randy didn't, was kind of a, uh, he kind of stayed away, but he listened to me, and he'll ask me a question once in a while. Once, now, when he was when I he I became a consultant for them, and uh, and, and uh, Bob Brinley said, "How about coming up to I think of San Francisco?" Ironically, and uh, he said he wants to learn how to throw a split thing. I said, "Man, he don't need no split thing and throw a ball 100 mile an hour." <laughs> he said, "What well, he wants to do it." So anyway, I go down to watch him pitch, and uh, I forgot where they were, and I think they were in Arizona. So so I went in the clubhouse for the game's over, and he's in there getting his arm worked on and all this. And, and he said, uh, I shook hands with him. I said, I hear you want to throw a split thing. He said, I'll talk to you after the game. I said, all right. So after the game's over, <laughs> he beat one. He called in. I talked to Bradley. He came to me and said, I said, I want to talk to you now. So listen, I ain't going to be here but a day or two. So if, if when you have time, we'll do it. But you've got to do it while I'm here. But anyway, it kind of upset me that he didn't. He didn't want to do it, before. but I guess a lot of pitchers don't want to, not a, nobody bother them the day they pitch, and that's the way he was. Well, I didn't know that. If they had him, I wouldn't have said anything to him. But he was a he was a good a good guy. And he's a, but those two guys were were lights out. They were like Drysdale and Colfax. Yeah. Both of them were that same light. They'd feed off of each other. What was Casey Stengel like when you went to the Mets? <laughs> he was. He was, Casey was, uh, he always called me Mr. Craig. I don't know from the first day <laughs> until the, every time I see him, I, I, he called me Mr. Craig. And he was a lot of fun. He was, he didn't do a whole lot of managing. He just, because he had a lot of, actually we were not great players, but we had a lot of play, guys that had been around. And he just put their names in the lineup and let them play. And he was a, uh, he was for he he was I can see why the press loved him because he was so funny he could say he didn't try to be funny but he was like Yogi yeah he he says things and it's just funny I'll never forget he was at uh, in New York we had they had the uh, baseball writers meeting I mean a banquet for the season open and he was going over the lineup and he, he was going over the lineup he was going to Hobie Landers and. Roger Craig and Gil Hodges and Charlie Neal and got around to the, all the outfielders. He got Richie Ashman and Frank Thomas. And he got to the right field and he could not think of the guy's name. <laughs> and he kept talking on and on. He said, he'll be ready when they ring the bell. And that's his name, Gus Bell. <laughs> <laughs> that was one of the funniest things I've ever heard. But he was, uh, I remember, uh, we had a first baseman named uh, Thronebury. Yeah. And Mark, he, uh, Mark he had a Huh? Marv Thornberry. Yeah, Marv. Well, we had both of them. We had Faye and him. But, oh, okay. But a lot of times, I, did, I used to have a lot of pickoff moves. I had a lot of men on base when I was with the Mets, and I threw over there a lot. A lot of times, I'd 
hit him right in the chest with the ball. And he didn't even, <laughs> he said, I couldn't see it. I'd come, come out of the shirts in the bleachers. I said, ain't nobody sitting in the bleachers. <laughs> it was empty. But anyway, on Casey's birthday, he was, I think he was 75, if I'm not mistaken. Before the game, they gave him a cake about as tall as he was almost. And so he, he went after he introduced and got his cake. He'd come back. He said, four or five of you guys go out there and pick, bring that cake in. And Marv Thornberry jumped up. He said, no, 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 you might drop it. <laughs> <laughs> but Casey was, I don't know, he, he was a... Uh, he was fun to play for. Yeah, uh, in spring training one time we were playing in, in the hot, like it is now down there in Florida, and he uh, he'd go to sleep on a bench. And once and, and once in a while, somebody the crack of the bat would wake him up. And one time he said, "What's that guy? Get Blanchard up! Get Blanchard up! <laughs> Blanchard wanted him on the ball top." <laughs> but he. Uh, he told me that at the end of both years, he said, now, you've done a great job for me. I pitch on a, every fourth days, and so at the first part of the year, he said, now, I don't want you to throw in between starts. I said, well, I like to lose. He said, no. He said, I might need you just in case we're ahead. I might, like, bring you in the late innings. And uh, so I did that, and, and so uh, after after season over, the first year, he said, if you don't get what you want, you come and call and I did it two years in a row, and he got me a, not much raise, but I got a raise both years. How Which, satisfying was it to get uh, sent to the Cardinals? Well, not really, because I went to a bunch of good guys, and I liked them, and I ne- never even thought anything about it. But then, you know, no, Car- Cardinals was a good ball club, and it just so happened we won it that year, and I won a game in the World Series there. And, and But uh, one of the best things about playing for the Cardinals, Bob Duke was my roommate. And we, he was uh, just as funny then as he is now. He kept the team loose, boy. He was, but we had, they had a great ball club with Gibson and God and what was the left-handed of Sadecki, Kirk Simmons, Sadecki. Uh, yeah. And that reminds when Sadecki and God bless him, he just passed away recently. Yeah. Uh, but anyway, we got in the World Series on the the fourth game. Johnny Keene came up to me and says. When, when Ray Sadecki goes in the game, I want you to get up and start throwing. I said, why don't you start me? He said, well, he won 20 games and he did this and that. I said, okay. And sure enough, I was, he only got one guy out. I came in his first inning. You know, pitched four or five, five innings, four and two-thirds, I think. And got to win. Uh, uh, Kurt, I mean, Kenny Boyd had a grand slam. Right? So I got to win in that game. That was a game that Ron Taylor pitched the last four innings. We give up. I give up one. We give up one hit and eight and two thirds in in relief in the World Series. But uh, my my time with the Mets and people, even today, I make speeches and all. They said, uh, "Do you uh, feel bad about me pitching for the Mets or all this?" I said, "You know, I said, are you ashamed of it?" I said, "Ashamed of it?" I said, "Not ashamed of it because I." I mean, I was pitching in the major leagues, and uh, and I, I look back now, and it really helped me. Oh, uh, when I became a pitching coach and a manager, especially about, I know I knew what hard times were. Well, I think I got one year I got shut out eleven times, five times, one to nothing when I completed the game, and we just had to find ways to lose every day, and 
every time I pitched, and uh, and I pitched pretty good both years. I had 27 complete games in two years. What was That's it like pitching? What was it like pitching in the polo grounds? Well, it was it was it had it was good some good things and bad things. A lot of uh, old uh, fly ball could go what about 240 feet and hit that facade out there, and, it, and down right and left field. Right field was a little bit closer than left field, and they had a as you, if you remember they had a, a, a upper deck came out over the field about well I would say about 10 feet, and the ball was a lot of home runs would just take that thing and it so it wouldn't go as far as the fence said, but it was a uh, you know, if you if you knew how to pitch and could and uh, get them to hit the ball in the gap or in the outfield, the center field was like it was four twenty seven, I think, today. And the clubhouse was all the way. That's another bad thing. Once you get taken out of the game, you're playing there, and you got to walk all the way to the clubhouse. You could have a chance. You could do that, or go sit on the bench and then walk. It is when the game starts, and you got to walk along all around around the outfield. You know, the polo grounds is the only field that I ever saw that had the uh, bullpens on the, on the playing field. They had them out in left center and right center. But it never really interfered with the game much, but a lot, they had an old tarp out there in case it rained and football got in there or something, or got in the dugout or got in the bullpen, they, you know, two bases or something like that. But they, they had the, the bullpen in the outfield. Yeah, now if a, if a ball made it that far, chances are the runner's going to to make it yeah, around. There was bases. probably there was probably this, I would say it's about at least three hundred eighty feet, three about three eighty five, three ninety to left center and right center where they had the bullpens. We're going to take a short break here on sports and torts, and when we come back, we're going to get right back to the interview Elliot and I did with Roger Craig. Stay tuned. <laughs> 